you please be seated? So last week we saw that God's creation was abundant and we heard that the crown of his creation was you. You are it, made in his image. You are the absolute crown of all that he made. Made in the image of God with freedom like God and reason like God and even a capacity for fun like God. And we heard that the problem is that sometimes we take the image of God with our capacity for freedom, reason, and fun, all of that liberty, and we misuse it in a way that takes it from someone else, in a way that mars the image of God in another human being or impinges upon their freedom in some way or denies their ability to reason in some way or spoils their joy and their life. There are many, many passages to look at today. So as a special treat, we've set them all out for you on the front cover of the, of the church bulletin. And uh, don't get used to it. We're not going to keep doing this. We're not going to spoon feed you each week, bring the lively word of God with you and learn to love it and learn your way around it. But this is a sort of, you know, charcuterie board of, of passages for you. And I just don't want you to spend half the day flipping around in the Bible. So it's all there for you. And uh, I think only the Spirit could possibly be responsible for this by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. These are in the same order that they appear in the sermon as well. So uh, it's all there for you this morning. We're going to look at the image of God, freedom, reason, and fun. Image. James chapter 1, addressing this fundamental question of the, the image of God. He writes this. He says, We are like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. To understand anything about ourselves, we must first understand something about God. And as I said last week, he is the focus. He is the focus of Genesis, the focus of the whole Bible. It's all about God. And our problem, I think, is that we have taken our eyes off God. We have taken our focus off God. We have forgotten, as a generation, what God is like. And thus, we have forgotten what we were supposed to be like as well. We've become ignorant of the image of God, and how then can we understand what we are like if we're made in his image? This has all sorts of practical ramifications. Take, for example, freedom. We're made in the image of God with freedom. If we lose the image of God and forget the image of God, what will that do for our freedom? Well, uh, it says here in Galatians chapter 5 that although we were created by God to rule and subdue over the earth, as we heard last week, with this sort of freedom over all of creation. Galatians 5, Paul writing says, instead of ruling and subduing it, we have submitted to it instead. Submitted, he says, to a yoke of slavery. I think he's describing here that weight that so many of us carry around with us and feel uh, that he says is a little bit like the collar of a farmyard animal walking round and around in circles at the mill. In the same way, we as as people now find ourselves going through the motions in church, round and round in circles and feeling burdened, compelled 
by sin and then dissatisfied at our own legalistic attempts to fix our sin, around and around we go. Sin and law. Sin and law. We do something wrong. We feel bad about it. We try to make it right. It doesn't quite work, so we give up and sin some more, and around we go, yoked, enslaved, and burdened like a beast. Not at all like the thing we were free and set over to rule, but instead ruled by nature itself, trapped, not free. Reason. Romans chapter 1, reflecting on the subject of reason. We've been made in the image of God with reason, that is a, a mind like his. Paul writes that although we were given this godlike capacity for rational thought, uh, the brilliance of the human mind with its ability to think up solutions and explore the universe and educate and produce things of beauty, fabulous symphonies, great sculptures that last thousands of years, paintings that people pay tens of millions to acquire. Although we were given this myriad of capacities for creative thought and and actions and to make things of beauty, Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Our thinking became futile and dark. And verse 23 of Romans there says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, mute idols. Now, in some cases in in human history, this has been a literal mute idol. People have have carved a thing out of wood or alabaster and, and bowed down at it. Uh, more often, I think, in, in the modern Western world, it's, it's more metaphorical than an actual kind of a god in your house. But uh, this could extend this idea to anything at all that demands obeisance and fealty and control in your life. Summarizing uh, the Apostle Paul's theological magnum opus, Romans chapter 1, I think it was uh, the great scholars of our age, Simon and Garfunkel, who once sang, the people bowed and prayed to a neon god they'd made. We have so often worshipped the created, not the creator. And church, we have arranged around ourselves things that mean more to us than the God who gave them. All sorts of of earthly priorities now abound at health and education and work and human relationships and, and home. People, places, and things have become our gods. And often our gods get more of our time, more of our affection, more of our heart, more of our thought, more of our creativity, and more of our money than the God who gave them to us in the beginning. It makes no sense for a people as brilliant as we are with all of this capacity for thought, to trade the immortal for something so rotting and death-bound and in decay as a created thing, no matter how wonderfully created it may be, it defies reason to worship the created in the place of the creator. So when people say to me, I I can't give to God, I say, why? Why? They say, well, I'm I'm giving to something that isn't. 
Oh. <laughs> I've not got a witty remark for that. It's just stupid. I'm not going to waste my wit on you. I like brushing my hair and cleaning my teeth. The image is marred. The freedom is yoked. The reason is dulled. And what about fun? Are we having any fun yet, church, this morning? James 1 says that often, actually, we're deeply unhappy. He uses the word uh, joyless, in fact, because, verse 21, he says, wickedness has become rampant. Here's the irony. Often it is the things that we do for pleasure that make us the most sad. Wickedness is rampant. Good translation. Uh, You know how else you could translate this word rampant? Can you guess? Abundant. Or even superabundant. The NIV says superabundant because it means abundantly abundant and they had to come up with a new word. Wickedness superabounds. It seems that we have responded to the abundance of God's creation with nothing more than an even greater abundance of sin. That is where we are. This uh, abundant word for our sin, or superabundant word, was used elsewhere in classical Greek for a residue. Specifically, it was the, uh, the medical condition when a person's ears produced an excess of earwax. Gross image, isn't it? You know, lunch talk. <laughs> word of warning, don't eat the eggs. <laughs> earwax! A discharge, an abundance of excess bodily fluid. Useless, revolting, and grotesque. And James says that this is the best way that he can come up with to describe these things that we have arranged around ourselves that we find more appealing and more fun than he who made them. You know, when Bridget and I were designing the front cover and we were looking for an image that would somehow capture the essence of the sermon series, this idea of an overflowing abundance, something pure, something wholesome, perhaps um, sort of reminiscent of the motif of baptism and a fresh start, something pure and overflowing and and clean and healthy and life-giving. Bridget asked me if I'd thought of also maybe including on the front cover something that also depicted the, the, the sort of essence of our sin. And I said, yeah, yeah, I have actually. I thought of something. How about um, this image from James, chapter 1? And she said, I don't think they'll want four weeks looking at a lump of earwax, Alex. <laughs> now, this is a sermon about redemption. It's not about earwax. Uh, it's just, however, too tempting to leave it alone. So just a little bit more. Bear with me. As a child, I used to get build-ups of earwax. You can laugh. This is a serious medical thing. And uh, eventually, as my, as my ears build up and I'd feel a clogging coming on, um, they would block up completely with, with wax on one side and then the other. And if you've ever had this experience, maybe a head cold or the flu and your ears have blocked up, you'll know how infuriating it is and how irritating it is when your ears get blocked. And Maybe if it's gone on for a while, you'll know that pressure in your head and you'll know the isolation of deafness that comes when it gets impacted. And uh, you'll know how sometimes if you leave it long enough, which you have to do on the National Health Service because that's how it works, you'll know that eventually you kind of lose your sense of balance and you start falling over until very gently the nurse 
carefully looking after your ear and the little hairs and the eardrum will syringe it out gently. And There is no pleasure, I think, quite like that instant feeling of suddenly being able to hear again when you were blocked up. Of You, know, you suddenly feel so clean. It felt dirty and suddenly it feels clean and you feel so alert. And um, as a kid, I would get my fingers like this and I would, I would rub them next to my ears just to hear how much more I could hear. And the TV would come down. And people have been sort of making jokes about me. And I would, like, hear them now. I'm like, hey, you guys. Like, I can hear. It all suddenly would just seem so clean and clear. And I think many of us, I'm laboring the point because many of us know what it is like to come into church wanting an experience like that of the soul. Wanting some change, to feel gross about your spiritual life, to feel as though there's some sort of spiritual blockage, you're sort of clogged up, and to come in here wanting a fresh start, and maybe you've waited a long time for that, and you want a fresh start, and here's the good news for you, you can have one. You can have ten if you want. How about a million? There is no limit to the number of fresh starts that you can have, because that which God abundantly made and we super abundantly spoiled, he yet more abundantly redeems in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Image, freedom, reason, fun, all abundantly redeemed. Two short passages to examine today, Mark 10 and 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, that was just the introduction. So let's look at Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man, even, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is pure money language. It's vulgar. It's all, all there is, really. There is a need, I think, for Scripture to find some human quantity some quantification, some way of of putting into a measurable sense the sheer abundance of what God does for us on the cross. And and the money metaphor here in Mark is very simple. Uh, Mark says that that the, the world has been taken hostage by sin and that Jesus pays the price of our release. This is an exchange. An exchange for our finite sins, gross though they are, of the more infinite pouring out of his life on the cross. This is an incalculable sum that is paid in Jesus for your release. This is an abundant substitutionary atonement as he pays the ransom price for our freedom, to give us our freedom back that God originally designed. Now, you don't don't know this about me, but I, I really like medieval warfare. When I say I like it, I wouldn't like to be in it because it's horrible, but I like reading about it, at least, in in bed. And uh, in in medieval battle, if a noble or any person of means was captured on the field of battle, they would be taken off and taken hostage in a foreign land. And then a ransom would be raised back home for their release over many years. And uh, the ransom was always huge. It was calculated to be the very limit of what the people back home could raise. And it was designed, I think, when it was paid, to give such a large sum of money to the captor that they could raise an even greater army than the one that had won before. 
and to really impact the hostage so badly that they couldn't raise one for a generation to come. And it would leave, eventually, the returning noble utterly humiliated and after the taxation of his people back home, facing all sorts of intractable social and and economic problems uh, back on their own land. But Christ would ransom us is not a thing that we could possibly put into numbers. Ordinarily, it was the people who ransomed the king. But in Christ, we find it's the king ransoming us. It's remarkable, extraordinary. Nothing in the world works this way. What a trade. That Christ, the king, would trade his life, his royal life for us, an immortal life, a perfect life for ours. This is God's response to your sin. This ransom price of the king. If you thought that the creation was abundant, I would argue that redemption is even more abundant still because creation was just fun, but redemption cost God. It is even greater. And of course, the Bible uses many different metaphors to, to kind of get us to get our head around the quantity of the abundance of his rescue. And none of the metaphors, even together, even all of them, even the greatest scholarship about all of the metaphors combined gets even close to conveying for us the the full fullness of the abundant abundance of God's redemption. The, The cross, in all of its majesty, is way beyond human understanding. The Reformation theologian John Calvin once said in his theory of accommodation that God lisps to us as a nurse to her children is wont to do. That this is just baby talk. This is God talking down to us in a way that we can get. That the, the mightiest mind-bending words that we can behold are just the simplest of things that God could communicate with us. So we're not going to grasp the fullness of the cross this morning or ever till he returns. But we can get the picture. And I think God frequently uses scale, distance, size, and especially money to try and get across to us the idea of how much he's done for us. 1 Corinthians 6 says it again. You were bought with a price. Absolutely a piece of money language right here. In fact, it's, it's marketplace language to describe the abundance of God's redemption. Uh, you see the notes there in uh, the front cover of the bulletin yeah, or, or in your Bibles if you prefer to, prefer to follow that way. Money language. And in fact, uh, the image isn't just borrowed from any old market like a fruit market or a veg market or something like that, you know, place to buy you know, a, a new backpack and cheap batteries. It's actually derived from a slave market where it was possible for the lowest of the low in human uh, history to be bought and sold, to be traded like commodities in a, in a human grocery store. Ain't that fresh, things Axel Rose. And uh, in this human grocery store where people were traded and bought and sold into slavery and out of slavery... It was even possible for a human slave to be redeemed. That is, uh, 
purchased, paid off, and set free. So we're thinking with this image about the lowest of the low, the most pitifully enslaved in human history. And the word price, uh, right here in 1 Corinthians 6, is actually at the opposite end of the scale to all of that pity. Uh, The word price, translated in the New International Version, high price, uh, is a word to do with value and the highest degree. It's a lavish purchase, we are being told. It is abundant. This word price, it, it means esteemed, it means precious, And it is even the same word that was used to describe a person of nobility or rank or high office, a pricey guy, contrasting now the lowest of the low, a slave, with the highest of the high, a noble. A princely son was exchanged for a slave, just as a king was ransomed for a serf. Each word taken to the extremes of human language, using money language in particular to to quantify and commodify this exchange that takes place on the cross in a way that as humans, we can just about get. I want to say, church, may we never lose the wonder. We'll sing this during Holy Communion. May we never lose the wonder of the cross. May we stare wide-eyed at the cost. May we be blown away. Last night singing in here, you know, Phil and I were sort of in tears and we realized we had to lead the church service and so we got it back together. But, you know, may we be... The 8 o'clock service, the Holy Spirit moved. Someone prophetically said, I think we should pray for this. And there was this great movement of the Spirit at the communion rail as people came to receive these, these lively tokens of God's grace. May we never lose the wonder. May... I don't know, may we just approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence this morning in a new way. And I encourage you to find your own story, your own metaphor, your own little picture or image of the cross in your daily life, something at your desk, something in your home, some little snapshot of of the abundance, some measurable childish motif of, of what it is God does to just give you once more a glimpse of the cross the abundance of redemption. When I was growing up, uh, maybe in in about fifth grade, I think, my best friend Colin and I would go out to play, uh, which is something maybe one or two of you remember as what children did before Xbox. (laughs) Colin's parents were pretty strict. Uh, To be honest, actually, they they were cruel. They were awful people and I think the reason we, we, why we played out so much was just to avoid the, the sort of vile danger of their home. And one day, Colin and I, we were out, we were out playing, and we found a huge bog. And, and by bog, I don't mean the sort of English idiom for a toilet. I mean an actual bog, a, a, a sort of a slurryish runoff from a building site, a mixture, an admixture of, of you know, mud and water and cement and sand and building rubble in, the, in this sort of um, noxious confluence of, of effluvial filth. It was disgusting, if you get the picture. And, of course, as a 10-year-old boy, no matter who his parents were, this was a most enticing thing. We made a sort of path, spent the afternoon building a sort of path through the mire, you know, bits of brick and stone and tree stumps and lumps of 
detritus from the nearby building site, throw it in, and we made a sort of path of stepping stones through the swamp, and in our minds, we imagined it was like a sort of, I don't know, ancient castle or something. We would tread through the bog and get through the mire, and as we were going over this makeshift path that we had made, uh, Colin, my friend, he lost his footing, which he had a tendency to do, this kind of thing. That was really the essence of the fun of being his friend. And uh, as he lost his footing, his, his foot got stuck in the bog. And as he pulled it out, whack, we found to our horror that his sneaker had come off and so had his sock. And his shoe had been pulled down into the swamp and uh, was sucked down and down into the mud. And he panicked. I mean, anyone would panic, but he panicked because he knew instantly that his parents were going to hurt him for this. It was not going to be a lawful chastisement. This was going to be something cruel and vicious. And the more he panicked to get his shoe back, the worse things became. He initially bent down, and then, you know, he knelt down in the mud to try and get it back. And then, sort of abandoning all all desire to stay clean, he sort of rolled in the mud and delved down with his hand to try and pull the sneaker back. And the more he dug for it, the more it got sucked away. And the dirtier he got until finally, in, in just terror and tears and plastered in filth and looking like a wretch, he just gave up. And he, he came back to my house. And he asked uh, my dad for some help. The thing is, that very night, my dad had planned a sort of important family meal out at a restaurant. And uh, in my mind, this was a sort of surprise. But as I retell the story, I'm I'm wondering if maybe he'd made mention of it once or twice in the lead-up. Who knows? (laughs) And it was the 80s. In the 80s, people dressed properly for dinner, and my dad was dressed very well indeed in a pale suit. Uh, I remember this vividly. He had sort of grayish-white shoes on. This is the 80s, right? White shoes. <laughs> Gray-white sort of plastic shoes. And, um, and, a, and, a, and a pale gray suit and a pastel shirt, a pale yellow shirt. And, and you know, if we're going to be really honest, a clashing pastel tie. But, you know, it looked pretty snazzy in the day. And uh, I can remember all of this. And, and as well as being obsessed with dressing properly for dinner, uh, my dad was also uh, obsessed with being on time for everything. And, and uh, this was the 80s when they still had clocks. So people were on time. And, and when we got home, he was good to go. Pale suit, well on time. And uh, as a parent, I realize now that he was probably somewhat frustrated Uh, that I was late, and I highly doubt that he was in any mood for two mud boys to come trekking through his house at the 11th hour. And my parents saw Colin crying. And joining the dots, I guess they knew enough about what went on in his home to know the ramifications. So my mum got him some clean clothes, some of my clothes, and uh, put his dirty ones in the wash. And Dad... My dad drove us back down to the bog in his car, Lancia Delta. Not an Integrale, sadly, but it was still a good car. And uh, he went down to the bog to try and retrieve the sneaker in his dinner suit, in all his 80s sort of finery. And uh, he fished around. He crossed the swamp. He went across our path 
to the place of no return, to this sort of thing. And he fished around with a stick. He'd actually bust his knee. It was a walking stick, I recall. And, and he fished around in the swamp until finally he dragged the, the sneaker up out of the filth. And he sort of held it aloft for us with triumph. You know, my dad, the hero, by the sort of laces. Oh, this disgusting thing. Stepping into to, to this filth in all of his finery, at cost, to redeem something, quite frankly, horrible from the pit. I mean, a fifth-grade sneaker is a squalid thing at the best of times. (laughs) I can tell you. One that's been in a bog for an afternoon is, is a sight to behold. I'm sure it was better off forgotten anyway. My dad did all of this. For a kid who was so unloved that even his family didn't care for him. And he did it all. Did all of that because he wanted to protect someone vulnerable. And of course, Colin turned up back home in time for tea, a bit late. And uh, in my clothes, so his parents found out immediately what had gone on. And his parents, seeing all of this, came down to our house. Do you know what they said to my dad? He said, it's a shame that you didn't clean the sneaker. (laughs) The Anglo-Saxon words that I wrote in drafts of this sermon to capture my feelings about that family, perhaps not pulpit language. I I hope with that derisive laugh, you're disgusted with them. I hope they're horrified at at just the, the scale of how... You know, utterly ungrateful they could be. How, how much they could take my dad for granted and take advantage of him in the face of such an abundant piece of egregious, even ridiculous grace. And saints, I want to say to you, if you're in that moment right now of frustration and anger with them, we only dare judge them for it if we're willing at the same time to hold ourselves up to the same level of scrutiny. How have we treated our Redeemer? Have we grasped the wonder of the cross? Shift uncomfortably in your pews. Have we grasped the abundance of the cross of Christ? The abundance of redemption that a king, the son of man, would step into our filth and fish around for us to bring us up out of the pit And we respond to that with nothing more than yet more sin. If we have grasped the wonder of the cross in any measure, we won't get the whole thing. But maybe in a new measure today, if we have grasped the wonder of the cross and the abundance of redemption, there is just one question before us in this sermon series, and it's the same question as last week. How then? Shall we respond? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as a people uh, who've been created abundantly. And yet, we've sinned abundantly. We found ourselves caught and trapped where we were made to be free. We come in to your presence, Lord God, as a people clogged and bogged by the things that we've done. But you're this God who 
lays aside his rights, lays aside his finery, lays aside his, his desires and his intentions and lays aside all of these things and like a, like a dad in all of his finery steps into some filth to save a wretch like me. Lord, we, we've got no words for the wonder of the cross. We've, we've got no words. Just pictures. Lord, imprint in our hearts and minds a new picture of your grace this day. We grasp the wonder, Lord God, would you open our whole lives to serve you in, in newness of life. In the name of Jesus, amen.